The theme for this year is full. I want them to just put the scriptures on the screen. I've read them Sunday after Sunday. By now, I hope that you know them. But Paul says that I have learned how to be full. There's some stuff you can learn. Paul said he learned how to be full. And as a result of being full, he then proclaimed, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that is literally God's will for every one of us, our lives. He wants us to be full and overflowing. Before I begin to get into the message today, just let me tell you some areas that we're full in you might not have heard about. The tax board wanted to assess us taxes on our property. They wanted to charge us taxes on 60% of the property. We didn't even tell you that. This week, Brenda and Tony went to bat for us and met the tax board. And in spite of the opposition of some on that board, guess what happened? They ruled in our favor. Amen. And I don't know if you know how much that is, but that's a cool quarter of a million dollars we saved just this week. That'll buy some chairs for our new facility. Amen. So thank God for what he's done. We thank Tony and Brenda for what they did to God be the glory. And I'm currently in a series on Father Knows Best. And there are seven component or constituent elements in your life. This makes up who you are, the social, the family, the physical, the emotional, the cognitive, the financial, and the spiritual. Those seven components identify you in totality. And if you suffer in any one of these areas of your life, it automatically affects the others. For example, anybody that's been married and in love with their companion knows that no matter how much you love your companion, if there are social problems, <laughs> it affects things at all. Amen. And if you've got a problem in your family, I don't care how much money you're making. If you've got problems in your marriage or with your kids, boy, there's no pain like pain with your children. It affects other areas. Every aspect of your life is interconnected in this manner. Father knows best how we can prosper. There used to be a TV series by that name, programmed by that name, and that's why I've selected the title. Not just because of that, but because our Heavenly Father really does know what is best for us. Amen. Other areas were full. Take a look at this. This is what's going on with our new building right now. Amen. They're putting up walls, walls, walls. Amen. Jericho, they were tearing them down. We're praying God put them up. Amen. Amen. This is our new facility. Right back there, you see, of course, you see the auditorium in the middle, and then there's the educational facility, a small. uh, We just passed a small auditorium, a seat about 250 or 300 people. And and then the offices right at the back, wrapping on around, Family Life Center, educational facilities, um, right on around the front, educational facilities, the foyer. That is a monstrous building. At first, people asked, boy, it kind of looks small. Doesn't look that way anymore, does it? Amen. That thing is growing. And uh, to God be the glory. They're supposed to start putting up the steel this week. Give God some praise. And they're actually several months ahead. I'm told they're actually several months ahead. Once they get the steel up, they can put the roof on. And once they get the roof on, they can go to, to work on the inside. So things are coming together. Our Father knows what is best for us. 
And in this part of the series, we've been talking about Father Knows Best, How We Can Prosper. I will conclude this today, but I'm going to preach a message that I hope will have impact in your life. The series itself that I'm in right now is based from Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount. I'll paraphrase since we've read that so many times, or you can read it on the screen. I hope you read it often. Jesus tells us that we, being flawed parents with a fallen nature, if our children come to us asking us for bread or fish, do we give them a stone or a serpent or a scorpion? And he said, that's preposterous. Of course you don't. Even with your flawed nature, you want to do what's best for your children, right? He said, well, how much more will our heavenly father, who does not have a flawed nature, give good gifts to his children when they ask him? Father really knows best. And a part of what he knows about our lives is why we're here. Before I formed you in your mother's belly, I knew you or ordained you to this specific vision that I had. You have this appointment and assignment with your life, he tells Jeremiah. But that's true about every one of us. None of us got here by accident. I've often said, I don't know the circumstances of your birth. That's not important. People talk about how they came from the result of a broken family or or whatever. Maybe somebody, you know, even the, their mother was a victim of an assault and they're the byproduct of that. Well, let me just tell you something. It doesn't matter what bus you got here on. God wanted you here. Amen. And he has a plan for your life. And you need to know this because you're special. You're not an accident. So special are you that Jeremiah 29 and 11, God said, I, this is the father talking. Father knows best. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And if you know much about life, you know that plans sure can help things go better. Can you imagine building that building that we're building right now without plans? That that would be ridiculous. It cost us $500,000 for architectural fees. More, actually. And... Can you imagine building that without plans? Can you imagine doing anything of any real significance without plans? You can't even go on a good vacation without doing some planning. Amen. Uh, I heard about these three people who were talking one day, a Russian, an American, and a blonde. I'll give Boudreaux a little rest today. One of our families sent me an email the other day. They were crossing over the Louisiana state line, they stopped at a truck stop. They sent me a, an email. They said they went in the truck stop and Boudreaux asked him, what's this I hear about y'all talking about me at Christian Tabernacles? So, <laughs> so I'll give him a rest this morning. But the Russian, there were Russian, an American and a blonde. And the Russian said proudly, we were the first ones in space. And the American said, well, that's right. But we were the first ones on the moon. And the blonde spoke up and said, that's nothing. We're going to be the first one on the sun. And the American and the Russian turned and looked at each other. And they said, you can't do that. You'll burn up. And the blonde said, don't worry. We're a lot smarter than you realize. We're going to go at night. Amen. (laughs) So (laughs) you better have some better plans than that. If there's one thing in life, we should know our father's plans are always better for us than our own. Any plans we develop, if we disregard his, will be vastly inferior to what he has prepared for us. I want to finish the series today on Father Knows Best. 
about how we can prosper by talking about this subject, biblical stewardship, a necessary prerequisite for spiritual authority. Would you bow your heads and pray? Father, I thank you today for your incredible word that is so filled with insight, remarkable and strong. God, it is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. And we welcome your word today and open our hearts to receive it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. I want to begin this morning by saying what we already know, that the Bible is very clear in defining the mission of the church and describing what we are commissioned to do. God wants us to know that his power and resources, everything we need to accomplish our assignment are available. When he planned for you to be here, he planned for the resources that you would need to accomplish your assignment in earth. He did. It was Jesus that taught, no man goes to war with a smaller army when a bigger one is coming without first sitting down and calculating, do I have a strategy sufficient to help me overcome the numerical disadvantage? If a man's going to build a tower, Jesus said, you better sit down and count the cost. If that is the advice of our Lord, you can be sure that before God ever commissioned you to come into the world, he knew what resources you would need to fulfill the assignment he sent you here on. They're already released in the heavenlies. Your assignment now, your task, is to roll your shirt sleeves up and in prayer and intercession and faith reach up and pull into this dimension what God has already released in your life. You don't have to twist God's arm. He's already released those over your life. You've got to get them into this world by passing through the realm of spiritual domain that is occupied by the enemy. And success is absolutely guaranteed if we will believe and follow God's precepts for our life. Absolutely. The Bible does not fail. The Word of God does not make a mistake. Our mission is literally the same as that of Christ, John 20 and 21. So Jesus said to them again, peace be to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. His mission, he was a light that came and shone in a dark place. Our mission is to bring his kingdom of light, truth, and freedom to a world that is bound by darkness, deception, and bondage. God loves to do this by working through us. There's nothing he likes better than to take ordinary people and bless them like he did Israel to the degree that they become literally the envy of everybody around them. And people begin to say, what's going on? I wish I could figure out what they've got going for them that I don't have going for me. And there's your opportunity to tell them about God. An important point Just so we're all on the same page, the Bible is unequivocal in this. In declaring the enemy has already been conquered at the cross. I wish I could hear an amen. Not only was sin defeated at Calvary, so were all of the effects of sin. And the chaos it it has caused. If I can say it like this, cancer was vanquished at the cross. As was poverty and strife, addictions were defeated as was depression and everything else the enemy has used against us. The resurrection of Jesus literally sealed the fate of the enemy. I love Colossians 2. 
Jesus, uh, Paul is writing and he talks about how we in baptism going under the water was a burial of your old life. If you have not yet been baptized, you need to get baptized as soon as you can. Paul said you come out of it, out of the water, and that's like the resurrection of Jesus. God raising you from the dead as he did Christ. And he says in verse 13, when you were stuck in your old sin-dead life, you were incapable of responding to God. God brought you alive. I need somebody to say, I'm alive. Would you do that? Right along with Christ. Think of it. All sins forgiven. Did you hear me? I don't care what you've done. It's the slate is wiped clean at the cross. Amen. The old arrest warrant was canceled and nailed to Christ's cross. I wonder if there's anybody here, don't raise your hand, but you've ever had a warrant issued for your arrest. Boy, it sure makes you good when the judge throws that thing out. That's what happened at Calvary. And the next verse says that Jesus stripped all the spiritual tyrants. How many? Come on, say it. How many did he strip? All in the universe of their sham authority. Their sham, their fake authority. They were stripped of that at the cross and marched them naked and exposed through the streets. I have a question. If the enemy has been stripped of his power and exposed as a sham and fake figure of authority. And you and I have been made made alive by God and are sent by him and empowered with his Holy Spirit to continue the work of Christ in the earth. I have a question. Then why isn't the modern church more effective at accomplishing its mission? Jesus came to earth to save us from our sins and to undo what sin had done to humanity. On that we can all agree, 1 John 3 and 8, for the purpose of the Son of God was manifested, this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. I need somebody to say destroy. What is the works of the devil? Cancer is the work of the devil. Heart disease is the work of the devil. Hello, somebody. Amen. Lung problems, diabetes, broken marriages, drug addiction, pornography, whatever holds you back broken at the cross. I I need you to see that Jesus came to destroy it. God's intention was that we, his body, would continue to expose the enemy for having been defeated and having exposed him as a sham authority to destroy the works of the enemy around us in our own lives and in our neighborhoods. John 14, 12, most assuredly, Jesus said, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also and greater works than these he will do because I go to be with my father. Jesus was confined to one geographical point. His body is spread throughout the earth. Therefore, if we continue what he was doing, look out, devil, your kingdom doesn't stand a chance. Amen. But the problem is, look at our world. It's in grave trouble. What happened? We were given authority. The enemy was defeated at the cross. Our cities are in the grip of darkness. Isaiah 60 and 2, for behold, darkness shall cover the earth and deep darkness the people. Our schools are becoming some of the most dangerous places on the planet, and yet we're required to send our children there five days every week. Since 
the first of the year and through the middle of Feb when everybody heard about the, the Parkland shootings in Florida. Did you know there were 18 school shootings? You didn't even hear about the others, did you? Just the one in Parkland's Florida. And since then, there have been a number of others, and that doesn't even count the mall shootings and the workplace mayhem and, and knives and everything else that's going on. The enemy is not whining anymore. He's not marching through the streets and humiliated. Instead, I'm going to be honest with you, it is my observation and feeling that the enemy is actually celebrating right now. It's Christians who are complaining. I'm not telling you something you don't already know. Join any group of Christians and listen to them talk about politics. We're the ones complaining about the status of our world. We complain about the school system. We complain about this. We complain about that. We're complaining about all the problems. We're complaining about a loved one that is fighting disease. We are dealing with mass murder, terrorism, the theft of billions, slavery. Did you know there are more slaves in the earth right now than there have ever been in the history of the planet? I mean, at the darkest hour of slavery years ago in this nation in South America, I want you to realize they had nowhere near the number of slaves that are currently in slavery. Human trafficking, drug abuse, and war. While the ones, this gets me, the ones we elect... To solve these problems, want to spend all their time fighting each other instead of the problems we sent them to fix. As Christians, we made a mistake. We are the salt of the earth, not them. We need to realize they will never be able to get to the core problem and fix the issues that are at stake here. We are the salt of the earth, the preservative that God placed in society to keep it from spoiling We're the light that is supposed to repel darkness, the yeast that is supposed to permeate the whole of society. But the big question is this, why aren't we more effective than we are? Take, for example, these school shootings, and you may disagree with what I'm about to say, but I personally think they're missing the point when all they want to do is talk about gun control. Hear what I'm saying. I am for sensible legislation. I am for background checks, but I am a hunter. And I want to tell you, until you get this right, you can take the weapon away, but this is going to still find a way to hurt somebody. Hello. How about the many occasions when a terrorist used knives or they drove a car or a truck into a crowd of pedestrians like they did just a few months ago in New York or Los Angeles or or France and how many other places? The terrorist in Nice, France killed 86 people and wounded 434 while driving a truck. Many of them are brain damaged, permanently damaged, in other ways crippled. What are they going to do next after they outlaw guns? And I, like I said, I'm for sensible checks. There's some people that shouldn't have them. But the, the, the truth of the matter is, what are you going to do next? Outlaw trucks? Amen. Las Vegas Steve Paddock killed 58 even with all the guns he had in that hotel room. That's 28 less than the guy in Nice, France did with a truck. The recent terrorist in New York killed and maimed people by driving over them or on on the sidewalk. What are they going to do, outlaw cars then? The real issue is being completely overlooked. They refuse to identify what is actually going on. There are demonic forces in this world. I don't care how much atheistic professors try to tell you there is no truth to the spiritual dimension all you got to do is open your eyes and look around our world is in trouble right now 
Hello, somebody. You can't legislate a change of heart. You can implement penalties for those who break it, but you have to wait till they broke it before you can even address it. I'm talking about a God that knows how to fix it before the problem ever manifests itself. He gets on the inside and begins to change the nature of the individual. Amen. The failure on the part of our governmental leaders to recognize the demonic influences at work behind these horrific events that continue to occur is an oversight of huge and dangerous consequences. Ask any of the, doc- ask any of the doctors in this church. You ignore the problem and deal only with a symptom. The problem doesn't go away. I once was preaching in Wichita, Kansas, and the pastor asked me to go with him to a house to baptize a man that had come to that church for years and years and never been baptized, and he developed a sore. He was wearing glasses, and right underneath where the frame of the glasses were at, there was a little sore. He sent off for some salve and put that on it and began to, it healed over and skin grew, but but what was going on was he had a, a cancer And he didn't deal with the problem. He just dealt with the the surface issue, the symptom. And that thing went inside. And when we went there, we knocked on the back door. The pastor said, we got to go to the back door. Knocked on the door. No one responded. I said, he must not be home. He said, oh, trust me, he's home. And he said, we're supposed to go in. Just give him a moment to make sure that he's able to receive us. So we waited a couple of minutes and then opened the door and went inside. When I went inside, I was horrified at what I saw. I saw a man that had a hole right here in his face with his eyeball dangling out. All the, you could look all the way down through this into his esophagus. It was, it was terrible. We put a garbage bag over his head. Do you hear me? Put him in a trash can and baptized him. That's how shriveled up he was. Just a, a skin and bones and baptized that man. I hate cancer with a passion. I hate cancer with a passion. We've lost too many of our loved ones to cancer. We've lost too many people at this church to cancer. I wish I could hear an amen. You say, where is it all coming from? We've, we've lost too many kids in schools to gangs and everything else. And look, I want to tell you something. At the same time that our leaders have tried to just put a salve on the sore, they have allowed the real problem to go uncorrected. Are you hearing me? They took God out of our schools and they took prayer out of, out of the schools and they took Bibles out of schools and out of people's lives. And when you go to work, you're supposed to hang Jesus on a, on a coat hanger just like you do your coat on the, uh, in the wardrobe there in the corner. Look, I want to tell you something. I don't hang him on the side and walk in. He goes with me wherever I go. He is a part of who I am. But they've tried to legislate this separation. And look what they have done is created nothing but chaos. Listen to what Second Chronicles 15, 3 through 6 said. For a long time, Israel has been without the true God, without a teaching priest and without law. But when in their trouble, they turned to the Lord God of Israel and sought him. He was found by them. Amen. God never turns anybody away. But the problem is, is that America has been a long time. Without the true God. They they don't want to hear the truth right now. And I'm not saying that critically. I am not negative. You listen. They got. They want you to talk about everything but him. Amen. 
and you walk into a classroom, thank God for the godly teachers that are part of this church and that work in our community. And thank God that we have school districts that are led by people that are, that are believers. But I know that your hands are tied. There's only so far you can go. And you look at the mayhem that's going on. I had a teacher stop me after the first service this morning who had been in teaching over 40 years. And he said, Pastor, you're right. It started when they pulled God out of schools and something started disintegrating in society. So this is what verse 5 said. And in those times, there was no peace to the one who went out, nor to the one who came in, but great turmoil was on all the inhabitants of the land So nation was destroyed by nation and city by city. For God troubled them with every adversity. When you pull God out, you don't realize it, but nature abhors a vacuum. And something moves into that vacuum that was created by the removal of God. And it's pure, unmitigated evil. That's the situation today. And you can say there is no evil, there is no devil, but all you got to do is look around. Open your eyes. Hello, somebody. And you say, why is it happening? I realize that in today's economy, both husbands and wives have to work to provide for their families. But the sad result of that is, you know what? Televisions have become our babysitters for our kids. Hello, somebody. They sit there and watch stuff that we never should allow them to watch. We've turned them over to Harvey Weinstein to become the ones that raise our kids and impart to them their values. Uh, We need to take our kids back. We need to tell the devil, not going to let you babysit my kids anymore. Not listening to that mess that comes, I'm telling you, and, and let me just get real. Let me just get real. I'm sorry. I'm probably shaking some of you up right now. And I'm sorry you're getting shook up, but I got to preach this morning. I'm not sorry for that. I'm going to preach what the word of God says. Amen. And I want you to hear me because it will help you. Father really does know best. God's plans for your life are vastly superior to anything Hollywood's going to come up with. And while I'm talking about our kids, it's not just our kids. What is it some of you let come in your home? You've got an open sewer running right through the middle of your, your, your living room. Hello, somebody. If it's not good for your kids, you say, well, I'm an adult. What's that got to do with it? Amen. Amen. I want to sound like Tina Turner. What's that got to do? Got to do. Got to do with it. Amen. You need to get rid of that and shut that mess out of your house. Out of your lives. You need to watch what you're watching. Be careful what you're watching. When you turn on the internet. Because there's there's constant temptation. And ultimately the ones that suffer the damage are our kids. They've lost their social skills. I'm serious. When I was raised as a child. They told me if you have six or seven good friends. In the course of your lifetime. You've done well. I thought that was horribly cynical. I've come to since learn that's very, very accurate. But you know all of the latest surveys of millennials, you know what it now reveals? Oh, I, I know they got 350 friends on Facebook. Some got 1,000. Amen. But what they reveal now is when you ask them, how many close friends do you have? They say none. Zero. The average millennial says, I have no real friends. All I've got are superficial relationships. And you have kids growing up doing video games. I'm sorry, that are so realistic, it's like you're actually in war. 
shooting people, maiming people, blowing things up until they're desensitized. Hello, somebody. And then millions of murders taking place and ever, from the time Hollywood has invented cinema until now. And we've all been exposed to that and we become desensitized. And then we're surprised that these kids that are isolated and alone become angry. Of course they become angry. You take away their purpose. They don't feel like they belong. They want to know why they're wasting their time here. Why is the world bypassed them by? Evolution teaches them they're nothing but a product of of a chemical stew, a flotsam that floated up on a beach somewhere that got struck by lightning, that they have no divine purpose. Hear me right now. God created. Created you. You're here because your creator brought you here. Don't you buy into that lie? Don't you buy into that lie that you're the accidental product of evolutionary forces beyond your control? Oh, no, no, no. There's a God in heaven who saw you before the world began. Before you were formed in your mother's belly. Like I told you a while ago, God said, I knew you and ordained you. Amen. Our task is great. We can't do it alone. We have the power and of the Holy Spirit working within us. The mighty God of heaven lives within us. What seems to be missing is the authority to use that power. Jesus clearly possessed it. Look at another passage of scripture found in the gospel of Luke. Chapter 19. And now I want to get to my, my real text. As they heard these things, he, Jesus, added and spake a parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem. And because they thought the kingdom of God would immediately appear. I'll get to that. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. He is going to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said, occupy till I come. Occupy is a military term. That's what took place in Afghanistan and Iraq. It is a military takeover. The kingdom of God in the earth is supposed to take over. When you do, they take over everything. They take over education. They take over the police force. They take over the economy. Look at somebody and say, the reason the economy is messed up. Tell them that. We've trusted people that aren't a part of the kingdom to fix it. Do you hear me? Amen. We're supposed to take over. God wants to elevate your life. And he said, the scripture... Jesus tells this parable, he said, but his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. Boy, if that doesn't sound like the Sam Harris's or the Richard Dawkins of our day, I don't know what does. Amen. The so-called new atheist. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom. (laughs) Oh, I get happy when I think about that. Doesn't matter who said he's not coming back. When he, when he did return and receive the kingdom. Do me one more favor. Look at your neighbor and say, our side wins. Would you do that? Oh, yes, it does. He commanded those servants to be called unto him to whom he had given money. That he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Hmm. Remember, they had taken over the economy. Then came the first saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained 10 pounds. And he said unto him, well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in very little, have thou authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said, likewise to him, 
be thou also over five cities. Or in other words, have authority over five cities. But those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring them hither and slay them before me. Now what is interesting is that Jesus tells this parable right after his encounter with Zacchaeus. You see, nobody would have thought that Zacchaeus was a prime candidate for salvation. But everywhere Jesus went and everything he did, there was a mission driving him. He didn't show up there beside that sycamore tree by accident. It wasn't a coincidence. He was compelled by his mission. I think of John 4, verse 1, and it said he must needs go through Samaria. Everywhere he went, he was on a mission. Look at your neighbor and say, you're supposed to be on a mission too because you're the body of Christ. That stands out to me in this scripture. And he tells us what that mission is. Bear with me just a moment longer because I'm going to land this in just a minute. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to say that which was lost. When they questioned him about Zacchaeus, this was his response. Like, hey guys, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost, lost, lost. That's an interesting word. It doesn't just mean to save from mortal danger, which it does. It's a very real meaning of the word. If you're lost, you are in grave danger. But it also means other things. He said to save, seek and save. The word save there also means to keep from perishing. It is actually an agricultural term. I grew up on a farm. There's a disconnect from present society that goes back, that once went back to the raising of food. That disconnect doesn't exist anymore. We walk into H-E-B, Kroger, buy our, what we're going to buy. But there was a time when you were intimately involved in tilling the soil with your hands and you raised crops in your backyard and you understood this process, and there's a little window of time whenever the crop begins to mature where you've got to bring in the harvest or it will not be saved. It will perish. He said, I am not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Oh, Lord. And so he has come to preserve. What, what does that mean? It means that he came to keep. When, when you preserve a crop and you don't let it perish, that is you're intervening to keep it from not fulfilling its potential. Amen. If you let it perish, potential is unrealized. The, the purpose that for which it exists is, is not fulfilled. And I want you to know that the Father is busy right now seeking to save and keep people from going through life without fulfilling their potential or their promise. If you haven't yet found your calling, it's not because he doesn't have one. I need a better amen right there. This is the context in which Jesus tells this parable where he said he gave ten talents, one to ten servants. And then they start coming back for an accounting. Luke makes the point that he's not going to return right away. They were thinking he was. And you know, there are folk in the church that think that too. They're singing, I'll fly away. Look, you need to get out of the airport and go back home and start doing some work. Amen. Can I hear somebody say that's right? We're hanging around the airport waiting and waiting and KLM's not even in sight yet. Air France is nowhere around. Amen. 
And what you need to do is go back and occupy until he comes. He's coming. I said he is coming. But until he comes, you're supposed to be taking over, occupying. Amen. Amen. What is really strange in all of this, and now I'm bringing it to a close, is that he ties spiritual authority into faithfulness and stewardship. He gives them each a talent, and he says, I want you to be faithful with this. And when one comes back and says, I've got 10 more, notice what he says. He says, I'm going to give you authority over 10 cities. When I first saw that, that blew my mind. He didn't say, I'm going to give you real estate in 10 cities. He didn't say, I'm going to give you a position in the government of 10 cities. He said, I'm going to give you authority over 10 cities. And the one that gained five talents, I'm going to give you authority over five talents. Jesus directly tied spiritual authority to faithfulness and stewardship. Oh, Lord, have mercy. Amen. And if you are not faithful in stewardship, you don't have authority over cities. Why have we lost our cities? Why does Jesus even want to give us authority over cities? Amen. Here's the problem, and I'm going to wrap this up. But Jesus tells us his kingdom is facing opposition. He informs us that some of those he created hate him. That the creator created hate him. He calls them rebellious citizens in verse 14. His kingdom is constantly opposed by the kingdom of darkness. He will deal with that. The struggle of good versus evil is a real one. And it is our assignment to put the enemy in his place. When Christ was here, evil lost dramatically at every turn. Every turn. All Jesus had to do was show up. And it got to the point the devil was whining. Are you come to torment me before my time? All Jesus had to do was just walk in the room and the devil went crazy. Amen. Hello, somebody. It was, it was a no contest. If you're into mixed martial arts, it was like George St. Pierre walking into the octagon against a 10-year-old. The other guy didn't stand a chance. I'm telling you, when Jesus showed up, devils started jumping out of windows. What is the problem now that that is not occurring with the church? Listen to what Jesus said in John 14, 12. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me... The works that I do will he do also, and greater works than these will he do, because I go to be with the Father. Amen. We were supposed to continue what he was doing and do even greater things, and yet the world is in grave trouble. Isaiah 60 and 2. The whole darkness shall cover the earth and gross or deep darkness to people. It's not the enemy whining anymore. It's the church. We're the ones complaining. Lost my job, Pastor. Going through a financial setback. Marriage is in trouble. Need some help. Got a bad diagnosis. You know what? He wants to restore the authority that the church is supposed to have. Jesus had Jesus said that if 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 the salt has lost its effectiveness, it isn't good anymore and should be discarded. And that's exactly what society has done with Christianity. They've swept it out. 
because we have lost our influence in society. Oh, help me. My question is this. What caused the church to lose its authority and impact and change the world around us? Aren't there churches in Orlando, Florida, where almost 50 were killed in the nightclub shooting over a year ago? Aren't there churches in Las Vegas where all those folks were shot attending a concert last fall? Aren't there churches in Parkland, Florida, where 17 people died recently? Aren't there churches in Houston? Why is cancer everywhere? Why so many broken marriages and busted up homes? And why so many people in slavery? Did you know Houston, Texas is the number one city in the United States of America for human trafficking? Aren't there churches here? Why haven't we taken authority over it? Why aren't we changing our culture for the better? The answer is the church has to face up to the fact that we have lost our spiritual authority. And the important question then becomes, how do we get it back? Look at somebody and say, we need it back. We need it back. We need it back. I'm taking my authority back. I'm the body of Christ. I'm taking it back. Jesus specifically states in this parable that godly stewardship of resources that God has given us will result in spiritual authority. And he specifically states that if we are faithful, we will be given authority over cities. Hmm. There's a reason that he's given us authority over cities. I wonder how many were raised in rural areas. Could I see your hand? Raised in rural er areas. What brought you to this big city? One word. Say it. Work or jobs. The economy of our nation is centered around cities. Why did God give us cities or want to give us cities? Because we are supposed to invade and permeate society and take control of the economy. We've turned it over to the hands of people that don't know what they're doing. Hello, somebody. Not only that, hospitals are in cities. You don't find a hospital 50 miles out in the middle of nowhere. They build a hospital in a city. I'm preaching to you right now. Not only that, educational centers are in cities. They don't put a school out in the middle of nowhere and you have to bus kids 75 miles one way. They put them in cities. That's where people are at. God wants his church to take over cities where we influence education, influence the economy. Gangs are in cities. How many of you would like to be able to get in your car and drive down through the barrios of Houston and say, I rebuke the demonic culture of MS-13. I release peace and I release tranquility in this city. Hello. Racial discord is found in cities. It's most hurtful there. It's most hurtful there. Amen. The economy and commerce of cities can be transformed if the people of God will stand up and regain their spiritual authority. The many problems we have have spiritual roots. And for us to sit back and believe they can legislate a law that's going to fix this is absolutely naive. The devil laughs at us and says, make all the laws you want. Walks right around it and goes straight for the hearts of people that he knows he can influence and control. How would you like to walk into M.D. Anderson and say, in the name of Jesus, get out of your bed, you're healed. In the name of Jesus, I command cancer to leave. Hello, somebody. We got someone in this building right now that healed completely of cancer. Where's he at? Amen. There he is. Stand up. Wife hugged me just a while ago and said, my husband is completely healed of cancer. Isn't God good? 
isn't God good? Now, we have a lot of stories like that. But we also lose people too. And I'm tired of losing people to things we don't need to lose them to. I'm mad at the devil this morning. In case you haven't figured it out, I want the church to be able to say, in the name of Jesus, get up out of that wheelchair and walk. In the name of Jesus, be healed. Amen. Cancer, I rebuke you and break your hold in Jesus' name. Want to be able to say to a family with marriage problems, devil, I know what you're doing. Your strategy has just been revealed. We pulled the manhole cover off and we see what you're doing down in the heart of this thing. You're rebuked in in the name of Jesus. Amen. The problem is today the church says, I rebuke you. And the devil looks at us and says, I rebuke you too. Oh, we have some healings. We have some miracles. I've shared a few of them with you just this morning. But what do we have? Problem is, you see, in America, 4% of Christians tithe right now. No wonder there's been a decrease in spiritual authority. Because we're not being faithful stewards. In Christian Tabernacle, it was 22%. That's roughly... That's just slightly over 20% or one out of five. So we're getting some miracles. Maybe, maybe it works out like this. I don't know. I've never sat down to try to figure it out. But say you get five people that have cancer and one of them gets healed. And we rejoice about the one that gets healed. But what about the four that didn't? I'm not saying that God's going to heal every person. So don't, 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 don't paint me into that corner. But I am telling you that we ought to be seeing more people set free and more people recover. I'm about to wrap this up. Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration. As a man meets him crying, my son is tormented to the devil. He's got a suicidal spirit. It throws him into the water and into the fire. I brought him, hear this, I brought him to your disciples to deliver him. And they could not. Oh God, they could not. Did you hear that? I brought him to the church, but they couldn't help him. Oh, they're boasting and promises that everything that they said they could do, they couldn't help my son. And Jesus looks at the disciples and tells them later, it was because of your unbelief. Then he turns to the man and says, if you believe all things are possible. And the man says, I believe, help thou my unbelief. And here is what is tragic. A man that wasn't a part of the kingdom. A man that was out there lost without God. Had more faith than the 12 apostles did. I'm sorry. Some of you can get upset and go home and say, the pastor was angry about something. I wonder if he had a bad night. Uh, I got one hour sleep last night. That's the truth. Not because I had a bad night, because I was wrestling with spirits to preach this this morning. I'm, 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 I'm going to say some things in these last couple of minutes. And you hear me. It's a tragedy whenever we invite people to come to churches in America and tell them we'll help their marriage. And they walk out saying, I went, but they couldn't help me. And Jesus, can you help me? Because your disciples couldn't. And it's a tragedy whenever unbelievers have more faith than believers do. Oh, hear me. I don't want that testimony. I want to be able to, to teach you enough word. And you get, to get full enough of the word where you incorporate it into your life. That when the enemy shows up, you pull out the word of God and say, The word says, devil. Amen. It is written. Hello. You stand on the word. 
and watch him shrink back into the corner of darkness because he can't defeat somebody who's standing on the word of God because faith comes by hearing and that by a word from God. You get this in your heart, it will transform your life. But we have to stop picking and choosing. 22% of Christian tabernacle ties. So we see a miracle every now and then. Maybe 20% of our people get healed. I just wonder what would happen if everybody were to suddenly make a decision to do what God said and honor God. Would God say, Christian Tabernacle, well done, have authority over Houston, Texas? Would God say that to the Christian community? Would God say that? We've got the largest hospitals in the world right here. Biggest medical center that exists. I'd love to be able to drive by those hospitals. St. Luke Methodist Memorial. Just stick my hand out the window and say, in the name of Jesus, let healing walk through these hospital corridors. Hallelujah to the Lamb. Hallelujah. 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 The average drug rehab, if they're honest, will tell you they are only running at a 4 to 8% success rate. Recidivism is unbelievable. I would love to be able to watch people come in to the kingdom of God that have tried all the drug rehabs. And they do it. Don't, don't, don't misunderstand me. People get free. But I would love for the drug rehabs to show up on Sunday morning and say, what you guys doing here, (laughs) down here? It's because we have authority. And that authority comes here. What I'm saying is a result of faith. You say, where does tithing figure into that? What is tithing if it is not an act of faith? If you can't trust God to take care of you, and honor his word. How are you going to trust him to heal your neighbor? How are you going to trust him to fix your kid's marriage? Help me. Lord, I feel the power of God in this room right now. How are you going to trust him to fix the world that is broken? Mired down in the clutches of sin. And yet God says, give me your 10%. And I'll see to it that you live better on the 90 than you can on the 10. And we say... can't trust you Lord and then we want to have spiritual authority first of all tithing is an act that demonstrates faith and I'll tell you what will happen as you continue to tithe you will learn to trust God because God will make things happen that you could never have made happen if you had kept all 100% of it you hear what I'm saying God will get you out of binds that you, 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 you couldn't have paid your way out of. Because I'm sure talking about a God that makes a way where there is no way. I believe he's going to do it again. Hallelujah. Amen. He can move the mountains. Oh, yes, he can, like the song says a while ago. So firstly, tithing demonstrates faith in God. And secondly, being faithful as a good steward with your resources tells the enemy something. He tells him whether or not he should respect you as having spiritual authority. It shows him you have true faith and you are a force to contend with. If you don't tithe and trust God 
and you come to the devil and say, Satan, I rebuke you. He looks at you and smiles and says, you, you expect me to listen to you and you can't even trust God with your finances. Hello, somebody. Say, ouch, oh me. Amen. Look at your neighbor and say, he's preaching so they don't know I'm talking actually to you right now. Amen. I learned that in church. Growing up in church, if you don't want people to think it's you that he's talking to, at the moment he's talking to you, get the loudest with your amens. Amen. That's the way it works. Devil looks at people. Come and say, I rebuke the devil in my kid's marriage. I rebuke the problems in my wife's health. I rebuke the financial trouble I'm in. He said, oh, really? Really, you rebuke it, huh? Well, I rebuke you back, amen. Didn't pay any attention. Because when you trust God, it demonstrates to the devil that you have faith. But third, it also reveals to him the condition of your heart. Because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Mm Mm-hmm. You can threaten the devil and command him all you want to. But you're gaming the devil if you think he's going to listen to you. He's not going to listen to you when he knows the condition of your heart. And I won't tell you that's a bad place to be. There's not a person that's ever lived for God that hasn't reached a point somewhere in their life where they felt uncomfortable telling the devil off because they were dealing with personal issues. That's where grace covers us. But grace covers us when we're trying to do right, not when we have intended all along to do wrong. Oh, preach, Pastor. Thank you. I believe I will. Good preaching. Amen. Don't even need an amen. I can amen myself. What is the benefit of trusting God? You will have authority when you pray. God heals us. He promotes us. He fixes our broken lives and families. And in addition, when you're faithful with resources... Listen to this. It took Mark Miller, an engineer from the 730 service. Mark has been an engineer for years, been over projects at $150 million. It was nothing for Mark. Mark went to school. They hammered like they do. We probably have engineers in this service. They hammered into him, the math has got to work. 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 Because when you build that bridge, if the math doesn't work, it's going to fall and somebody's going to be killed. You build that cat cracker, it's going to blow up if the math doesn't work. You've got to have the math right. You hear what I'm talking about? Mark told me that he struggled for years with tithing. God healed his wife, Linda, of that, that terrible brain tumor, that the one that John McCain has that, that they say is almost hopeless. God healed her. She's alive right now when she ought to be in her grave. She was one of those that, I, that I'd like to be able to say God did that for everybody. Amen. And I don't know all the, all the whys about, you know, some people get healed and some don't, but this could be a part of what I'm talking about. Mark struggled, he said, for years with, with tithing because he said, the Pastor, the math doesn't work. 90%, I don't care what anybody says, is less than 100%. And then God gave him a revelation. And he said it, tears in his eyes. He said, Pastor, I figured out what happened. When you tithe, God changes the math. That blessed me so much. 
that blessed me so much and I'm done because that's what happened Jesus looked at the little widow dropping in two little mites and said she is giving more than them all he changed the math he didn't say I value her giving more than all he said she's actually giving more than all those two two little mites suddenly multiplied little boy with two two loaves and five fishes God changed the math Amen. Widow of Zarephath, she had enough for one cake. God changed the math. You hear what I'm saying? If you will honor God, God will change the math in your life. God will change the math. Things will start to multiply. Hello, somebody. He will open the windows of heaven over you and pour you out a blessing that there is not room enough to receive. He will rebuke the devourer for your sake. That's what he did for us this week at that tax meeting. He rebuked the devourer. They were going to eat up $250,000 of the church's contributions. The Lord said, I rebuke you, devourer, in the name of Jesus Christ. You're not doing it. And we got the victory. Hello, somebody. God will do that in your personal life. God will do that in your marriage. God will do that in your kids. God will do that in your finances. God will do that in your health. God will rebuke the devourer where he can't touch you.